I want to begin with this as we are now in our fourth week of um, the series, A Costly Journey, as we consider the, the cost of, of discipleship, the costly journey of discipleship. Uh, and, and just to ask you this, what, what are you in pursuit of in your life? What are you in pursuit of? And for some of you, the way you answer that is by saying, well, what day is it? Because I feel like it changes from, from day to day or season to season. Normally, this time of year, I would be in pursuit of another national championship for my uh, Tar Heels. And by that, I mean I would be doing everything in my power to will them to another national championship. But two things. One, I accomplished nothing by sitting two feet from my television um, and, and urging those guys on. And two, apparently you have to be in the tournament to be considered for a national title. So uh, that's weird. I don't know what to do with that. Um, <clears throat> we pursue any number of things in, in our lives. Maybe you are in pursuit of just to be in a more comfortable place financially. Maybe you are in pursuit of identity. Maybe you are in pursuit of relationship. Uh, maybe you are in pursuit of the ability to finally lay to rest these things in your life that you've been clinging to for so long that, that are, you feel like are just weighing you down. Maybe you're in pursuit of health. Maybe you're in pursuit of the, the betterment of someone else in your life. There are any number of things that we, are, we are, feel drawn to give our time and our energy and our attention to. And the question is, if you were to play any of those things out, pursuit of financial gain, pursuit of... of um, advancement in your work, pursuit of graduation, pursuit of whatever it may be in your life that you, you feel like you might be chasing in the season, pursuit of identity, like I'm trying to figure out who I am or I'm trying to reinvent myself or, or, or pursuit of relationship, play any of those things out to their conclusion and, and where does that leave you? Where do you land? And, and another way of saying that, and Ed asked this question in his sermon and James uh, asked me this question when I, when I walked in. Um, if you, if it were the last day, if you knew today was it, this was the last day of your life, how do you spend it? Because I think that we can, we can play any of those things out and convince ourselves that there, there, is, there, there can be um, something redemptive about the things that we are trying to pursue. I want to be better off financially so that I can be a blessing to others. I want to, um, to be rooted in, in who I am so that I can better help other people understand who they are. And that's, that's fine. None of those things inherently in and of themselves are wrong. But if you play those things out to their completion, where does that leave you? And, and a, a better way to, to frame that is if, if this was the last day that you had, what value does it give to those things that you might be chasing and pursuing? Do they hold up to the fact that there is a, an, an, a, there is a shelf life, there is a termination um, to, to everything that we see? Um, without the hope and the promise that Jesus will one day return and establish on this earth his kingdom forever, without the hope and the promise, as we read in Revelation 21, that he is making all things new, without the hope of that, the national, the, the national, the natural trajectory, maybe the national trajectory, the natural trajectory of everything is decay. You may feel it, you're, you may, like your body, you might be right now like, yeah, I, I feel that every day. Like I, I wake up wounded, not because I did anything. Like I wake up injured because of, I, I slept wrong apparently. Like the natural trajectory of things is, is decay. So if, if this is your last day or if you're, 
you play any of those things that you're pursuing in your life out to their completion, where does that leave you? And, and I think it's important for us to wrestle with, with that because we could ask the same thing about this, this question of the costly journey of discipleship. You know, you could hear that, yes, it costs us our, our life as we talked about in, in the first week, or yes, it costs us our comfort as we talked about in week two, or yes, it costs us our busyness as, as we talked about in the third week. And so what you could say in that as well, all right, I'm going to decide today to, to allow myself to be made uncomfortable. I'm going to go out of my way to serve someone today, and at the end of the day, I can feel good about that, and I can check that box because I've done that thing. Or I'm going to seek to be less, less busy, and which maybe a lot of us should do, or to maybe have a healthier rhythm of life, one in which the, the, the tyranny of busyness does not rule our day or our, uh, the way that we spend our time. Maybe we need to let go of some of that. But are you doing that just for the sake of doing that? Are you, are you allowing the journey of discipleship to be costly just for the sake of being costly? Or, or instead, are you pursuing the one who invites you into that journey in the first place? Because the, the call to discipleship is not just about checking boxes. It's not about uh, just being able to say, today I served someone um, that, is, that is, you know, other than me. Or today, I chose to rest instead of, of being busy. That's fantastic. I hope that you take time to do those things. But again, play that out to its conclusion. What was the purpose of that? Was it just so that you can say that you did it, or, or was it because in some way it helps you to draw closer to the heart of Jesus in doing so? Because when we serve someone outside of ourselves, we know that ultimately that's who Jesus is. That's what he embodied. That's what he came to do. Or if I choose to, to establish and live into a healthier rhythm of life, as I read the Gospels, there is nowhere in the Gospels that I see that Jesus was in a hurry to get anywhere. And so maybe if there was a, this rhythm that Jesus had that, 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 was, that was in time and keep, keeping time with the, the leading of the Father, then maybe in doing that, it creates space for me to connect more deeply with Jesus. So I want to I invite us as we prepare to continue invite you to consider three things, three pursuits, three ways that you might more deeply pursue the heart of Jesus. And, and one is that daily, daily you, you seek intimacy with him. Daily you seek to create space where you have intimacy with Jesus. And, and that's exactly what we talked about last week, like finding time and opportunity for you to find yourself at the feet of Jesus just listening, just being in his presence. And that might look like prayer. It might look like scripture uh, reading. It might look like just silence and stillness and, and shutting out all of the noise and, and just listening to see. Intimacy with Jesus, uh, dying to self. As, as Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, they, they must take up their cross daily and follow me. The taking up of the cross is dying to myself, dying to the, the life that I think that I should, uh, that it is my right to live the way that I want to live it, dying to that. And that's something that we don't just do once, we do it daily because that gravitational pull of self is so strong, it's always going to circle back around and if it can't get you this way, it's going to get you this way and the enemy is crafty. He's always going to convince us that there are things that we ought to be able to pursue in our lives. So daily dying to self and then finally the renewing of your mind. Like think of the onslaught of information that you allow into your mind on a daily basis. It is, it is everywhere. Is it renewing your mind or, or are you just becoming callous because of it? 
So as we consider this costly journey of discipleship, it's not the journey for the journey's sake. It, it is the journey that is drawing us closer to Jesus, and in that we learn what it means to live faithfully as his disciples. So I, I just invite you daily, pursue intimacy with him, choosing to die to self with, with his help, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and, and renewing your mind every day. Because if not, then, then what we have to assume is that we are likely operating in such a way and, and creating lives in such a way where we are just busy enough or we are, we are just distracted enough that we are, we are missing out and we are maybe even shutting out the opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit and to allow um, God's word, God's invasive word to, to do work in our lives and, and make us more like Jesus. If we're not being intentional in the way that we pursue him and seek time with him, then it's likely that we, we, are, we are maybe even without knowing it, kind of shielding ourselves and, and creating a buffer between us and the work that God desires um, to do in our lives. And this morning, we will look at one of the ways um, that, that we are probably uh, most distracted when it comes to this, this idea of intimacy with Jesus, daily dying to self, and the renewing of our minds. We'll look at um, one of the things that Jesus speaks to, not just in our passage for the morning, uh, but often. So if you would, in honor of the reading of God's word, please stand with me, Luke uh, chapter 12. Beginning with verse 13, just a few verses. Luke writes this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. As I often say, context is important. Someone in the crowd said to him, verse 13, what is the crowd? Why is there a crowd around, around Jesus? And, and how is Jesus interacting, interacting with the crowd leading up to this moment? Go back to the beginning of, of chapter 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And he, he goes on, he's instructing his disciples. So he's teaching his disciples, but then there are others who are leaning in, who are listening in uh, to what Jesus is teaching. And he ends this. This is uh, not only a warning, but an encouragement. Uh, in verses 11 and 12, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. What a comfort. Uh, and as Jesus says in, in John's gospel, uh, that, that the Spirit will come to lead us into all truth, right? So the Holy Spirit, there's this activity, this work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in which the Spirit teaches us how to respond in a given situation. Maybe you've been 
been asked a question about your faith or you are afraid of sharing your faith because you're afraid of being asked the question, the question that you don't know the answer to. And to trust, one, that sometimes it's okay to simply say, that is a fantastic question. Let's, let's pursue the answer together. Or to be able to give as, as, as Jesus gives uh, an instruction elsewhere to his disciples to, to be able to, to testify to the reason for your faith. Actually, I believe that's, that's Paul in one of his letters. But to be able to give reason for your hope. Right? Are you willing to give reason for the hope that you have and trusting that the Spirit will lead you in that? So he's, he's, he's encouraging. He's, he's setting his disciples up as we see him do in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. They will face persecution. They will face difficulty. And he's encouraging them. Hey, when that happens, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit is going to, don't worry, because the Spirit is with you and the Holy Spirit is going to lead you in the way that you should respond in those situations. I I don't know if Jesus ever felt, like, good about his teaching. Like, if he was like, man, I, I really nailed that. Or maybe that was just every time Jesus opened his mouth. But if he ever did that, you know, fully man, fully God, like if the human part of Jesus was like, that was, hey, that was, that was really good, self, good job. If he ever felt with that, then, then leave it to humanity to, you know, knock him down a peg if that's possible. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. How many educators do we have in here? Or, or how many of you, like, in your job have ever... Part of your responsibility has been to teach someone how to do something. Or you're a parent just trying to, like, teach your kids how, like, how to put clothes on in the morning. This would be, like, one of those moments where you just felt like, all right, I killed that. That was I, everything that I had in my notes, everything that I wanted to say and accomplish, I did that. And then some kid in your classroom raises their hand. We were laughing earlier because on those good neighbor bags, which I would encourage all of you, there, there are plenty back there to take one of those good neighbor bags. And written on there, and those are just, if you, if you encounter someone in town that you feel like, man, they look like they could use a snack, bottle of water, let them know that somebody loves them, like this is a tangible way for you to show love to somebody. So on most of those bags is written a note, God loves you, Jesus loves you, and there's one bag that says, do, do you know that food is good? That's it. No context, just like, like that's like you just finished as, as a teacher, you, you've taught this really important thing, and maybe it's math, right? Maybe it's algebra. Maybe it's something that kids are never going to use ever in their life, but you've checked the box. You've done what you're supposed to, and a kid raises their hand, and you think, this is it. I got them. Like, they're engaged. They're wanting to learn. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna ask this brilliant question, and I get to continue to share my wisdom with them, and what you get is, did you know that food is good? I mean, it's like my younger son, Braden, when he was little, he's about to walk out the door, and he's like, hey, did you know you can't take snakes to kindergarten? I didn't know that, but I thank you. And that's probably a great rule to have that you can't take a snake with you uh, to kindergarten. And, and that would seem like, Luke, man, we feel like maybe you missed some lines there in, in your recording of, of this gospel, except for the fact that we, going back to the very, I mean, Luke has, Luke has already put himself, you know, like in the crosshairs from the very start. So if you go back to Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, 
everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So while this might seem like a really drastic jump from one thing to the next, we have to assume that because Luke has carefully investigated first-hand accounts, first-hand accounts of, of what has been experienced first by, by those who lived it, those who walked with Jesus, because Luke has taken the time to do that, we have to assume that there's a reason that this is recorded this way. If Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and, and tell his followers, don't worry about what happens when you face opposition. Don't worry about what happens when you face difficult times. That's going to come. You're not alone when that happens. And then there's this question from the crowd, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, which to us seems like that is just out of left field, except for the fact that if you were to take Luke's gospel account and Luke also the author of Acts, if you were to take those two things together and, and look at the scope of them, one of the things that Luke realizes in his careful investigation is that there are some themes that Jesus continues to lift up, and one of those themes is possessions, or is wealth, or is the danger of wealth, or is the, the, like the, the role that wealth, if we're not careful, can play in our lives. It, it is something that Jesus continues to elevate as being important, one, because he knows what it does to our hearts, and two, because he has a different idea of what the economy of the kingdom is ought to look like, and it is very different than the economy of this world. So in Luke's careful observation, this is something that you will find in, in both his gospel account and the book of Acts, these things continue to be raised to the surface because this apparently was important in the kingdom of God. Now, if, if, if one of the things that is being taught here is not to worry when you face difficulty and persecution, if I am a person who is prone to worry, then maybe one of the things that I am worrying about is whether or not I have enough, and that's the question I'm going to voice in this moment because I'm less concerned about the opposition I might face because maybe I'm not even going to put myself in a situation where I will face opposition because I am too concerned about whether or not I'm going to have enough to live the kind of life that I want to live, and that's where this man is, is, is raising his hand. Now, this is also the ultimate, like, like, wait till your father comes home, right? If you are in an argument or if you're a parent, like, you know, having maybe a challenging time with your kids, it's not, maybe instead of saying, wait till your dad comes home, say, don't make me call Jesus. <laughs> and that's what this guy has done. And we have to assume that he's the younger brother in this situation because otherwise he, like, he doesn't get to call the shots of the way that the inheritance is divided up. So this is the younger brother. And, and I would assume that maybe his, his older brother is with him. Or, or, you know, maybe let's not assume that. What if his older brother was with him? And he's like, I'm, I'm going to ask Jesus. And the older brother's like, do not, do not ask Jesus. <laughs> Now, I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask Jesus, don't, I'll give you, and then he just speaks up, right? And this would have, I mean, Jesus as a rabbi, like this was not out of character for a rabbi to be called, a, called upon to, to settle some sort of dispute, right? So this wasn't like completely out of the blue, like this is, this is in keeping with the way that things would have been settled for the people of God. And, and so uh, this, this young man, this younger brother uh, speaks up, teacher, 
tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's like the ultimate whine, right? The ultimate like whining. Like I'm whining to Jesus because I think he will do something about this. But Jesus doesn't get drawn into the argument because that's not his chief concern. His chief concern instead is that what is at the heart of that argument? What's at the core of this question? It's this man's heart. That's the thing Jesus is most concerned about. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about the things in this world that are unfair. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about injustice. He absolutely cares about injustice. But he's also not willing to just put a band-aid on the things that are unjust in this world. What Jesus intends to do and what Jesus gave his life for was to show us a new way and for us to recognize the wickedness that exists in all of our hearts. That at the very core of who we are, we have this brokenness that we carry around with us every day. And that's where the dying to self comes into play daily. So it's not that Jesus doesn't care about this situation. It's that Jesus cares more about what's at the heart of this situation. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Which is an interesting question because one of the things that we know is true about Jesus is that he is the judge. He is the one who, before whom we must give an account. He is the one who is the only one who has the right to judge. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His is the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and tongue confess and heaven on, in heaven and on earth and beneath the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the only one who has earned that right. But what he is saying here is not that I, I don't have the authority to judge. He absolutely does. This is, this is not the argument I'm, I'm getting drawn into. Then he said to them, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And I think that what's really important for us to hear there is all kinds of greed. Because maybe, maybe you're a person who, who's, you know, I'm, I'm content to live with, with the little that I have. Praise God for that. But are there other areas in which you're, you're, you feel like your heart is drawn, like you want more? than what you have. Maybe it is in the area of relationship. Maybe it is uh, in, in the area of pleasure. Maybe it is in the area of advancement. Maybe it is in the area, whatever it may be. But it may not be in possession. It may not be in, in financial gain. It may not be in wealth. Beware of all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. It's not the more that you have, the more worthy you are. The more that you have, the more rooted you are in your identity. Jesus is careful to point out here. What is important for you to understand is that it's not in how much you have that you find life. When Jesus promises us this life and, and life to the full, this is not what he had in mind. Now, listen, I, before we go further, I, I, I want... I want us to understand that there, the Lord may choose to bless you with financial wealth, but then it's a question of what do you do with that, right? And, that, and that's what, what Jesus is getting to here. Having wealth is inherent, and that in and of itself is not wrong. Having possessions in and of itself is not wrong. 
being well-known, well-liked, like pursuing relationship in and of itself, not wrong. But it's a question of when you play that thing out to the end, where does it leave you? What is, the, what is the end goal of that pursuit or what is the end goal of that which you have been given? And so Jesus uses this as an opportunity to, to teach, to, to tell a story, to give an illustration. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And, and I love the way that that's stated, the ground yielded the harvest. Did this farmer do what he knew to do in the planting of his crop, in the, in the preparing of his, the soil and the sowing of the seed, absolutely. He did everything he knew to do. But if you have ever gardened, if you, had ever, if you have ever spent time, maybe some of you have farmed in here, you know that there are times when it just feels like, man, it, like the, the fruit that comes forth is abundant. And then there are other times you're like, man, I, I did everything the same way, and yet it just seems like the return is not the same. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He did what he could, but God gave the rest. Uh, for years, for generations, God's people were, were nomadic and agrarian, and it, and it put them in this place where they, they, they had to live in, in faith that God would continue to send rains when it was time to rain, that God would continue to bring sun when it was time for sun, that they would be able to harvest um, based on the goodness and faithfulness of God. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops because it's so abundant. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. He already had places to store his crops. And yet he thought, let's demolish that. Let's let's wipe everything away that I already have in place to steward and to store what I'm used to getting because all of a sudden now I have more. So let me do away with the way of life that I've known up to this point and with the way that I've lived and stewarded this, the crop that I'm given. Let, let me just raise it all to the ground and start over and build bigger barns. Now I'll store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Look at the way that this story has told. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus of grain. At at the center of this and at the heart of what Jesus is calling out in this man, yes, is greed. It is hunger for more. But at the center of the heart of greed is this self driving and and convincing this man that what he has is not enough, that he needs more and more and more for the sake of who? For the sake of self. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be Mary. The farmer is not foolish as God says to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And that, that's where we get to the question, if this was it, if this was the last day that you had, how do you spend it? And, and, and what does it do to the things that we pursue and that we elevate as being so important in our lives? If this were it, where, do, where does that 
in light of eternity, in light of the, the, the finiteness of, of our lives, our time here on this earth, but in light of the eternal, eternal nature of God's kingdom, where does that leave us? You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? It's not in, in his planning and, and provision for the future that this man is being called foolish. It's that by his wealth he thinks he can secure a future that this man is foolish. It's not in, in the, the working and, and seeking to, to have an income and seeking to, to possess things and, you know, maybe your desires, I want to have a home and I want to have a family, and, and it's not in the, the pursuit of those things that, that we are called to question. It's in coming to a place where we believe that those things are going to secure for us a future. Our future is already secured in the one who holds eternity in his hand. The one who is ever present in and yet stands outside of our understanding of time. The one who has taken our brokenness and our sin to the grave so that we might stand before the Father pure and forgiven. So that we might live into the fullness of life that Jesus makes possible. A life secured by what he has accomplished. By what he says over us. By the fact that we are called his. By the fact that that we have become the righteousness of God because of what Jesus was willing to do. Therein lies the security of our future. It's not in our wealth. It's not in our possessions. It's not in our accomplishments. And even if you say, well, you know what, I, I really do want to make a difference in, in the lives of my kids and in generations coming after me, praise God for that. What are you teaching them along the way about what it looks like to steward all that you've been given? Are you teaching them that, hey, this is, it belongs to the Lord before it belongs to me. It belongs to the Lord before it belongs to us. Because if I have it stored up in a barn somewhere to use the illustration that Jesus uses here, at some point it comes to nothing. What is the eternal value of the things in your life that you are pursuing? Is there eternal value in the things in your life that you are pursuing? What is enough? Where's the finish line of those pursuits? Well, when I have enough, then I'll begin to be generous. Then I'll begin to give things away. But what's enough? If we're not careful, that's a... That's the finish line that we can just keep kind of moving a little bit further down the road. Because I'm not convinced yet that they have quite enough. And we've all seen, you know, we saw a couple years ago how, how fragile and how frail this, this economy, this, I mean, just globally, like how frail it is the things that we invest in. And yet we're invited to make investments that have an eternal implication. Yes, financially. But more than that, in the way that you spend your time, in the way that you seek and, and pursue and enter into relationship with the people around you, in the way that you leverage the gifts that God has given you, in the way that you leverage whatever sphere of influence God has allowed you to have, there is always opportunity to think um, with, with, the, with God's kingdom in mind and to view the things that you have and the things that you do through that lens. And what Jesus is saying here to this man is, hey, you're short-sighted. You're stopping short. It's not about me settling an argument between you and your brother so you have enough. 
It's not about that because your time here is finite. It's about choosing to live into this kingdom that I have come to bring to bear on this earth. And as a citizen of that kingdom is choosing to see every good gift you have been given as an opportunity to return thanks to the giver of that gift, God. And when we begin to live in that freedom and the freedom of God's provision, because then Jesus will go on to say, and I'll close with this, Jesus doesn't just leave this man hanging there, right? He doesn't just say, hey, one day your life is going to end. It's going to be demanded of you, and, and what do you have to show for it? Man, that, that's like little black rain cloud. Thanks, Jesus. I asked you to like settle a dispute between me and my brother, and instead you tell me the story that one day my life is going to end and everything I have is going to amount to nothing? Man, what kind of rabbi are you? But then Jesus goes on. There's always hope. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? The answer is no one. Although some of you are like, I try. And, and if you could, I would have a lot of extra hours in my life. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. Don't be afraid to pursue and seek intimacy with Jesus. Don't be afraid to deny yourself and lay down your life and take up your cross and follow him. Don't be afraid to allow your mind to be renewed every day so that your mind and your heart become more aligned with the mind and heart of Jesus. Don't be afraid to seek the kingdom because in that everything else comes. Because when we do that, then we, then we, we prioritize our lives in such a way that it's not about greed, it's not about storing up for ourselves more and more and more. It's about asking, how can I take what I've been given and use it in the lives of other people? How can I be a blessing to others? How can my life reflect the priorities of God's kingdom on this earth? I'm gonna close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. This is at the end of his book, Mere Christianity. He's talking about this, this reason to sacrifice something that we love The cost for us will always be great, right? And, and, and C.S. Lewis expresses this, this, this dilemma in his last paragraph of this book. He says, The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real life. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. 
Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Stand with me, let's pray together. Jesus, what, what challenging words for us to hear. Because we live in a world in which we are bombarded every day with, with this, this promise or this, this priority that it is, it is our job to seek. It is, it is our right to pursue and to seek and to have more. But we're so thankful that as difficult as it is to, to hear these words of yours and as difficult as it is to hold our lives up to your examination and, and, and to allow this word of yours to put our lives and our priorities on trial, as difficult as that is, we are so thankful for the promise that if we seek first you and your kingdom, that we will have everything that we need. And so, God, if you have chosen to to bless us abundantly and richly, may we steward what we've been given in a way that is reflective of your heart for this world. God, if you you have chosen for us to, to, to live simply, then we praise you for that. And we pray that you would protect us from, from the, the greed that just continues to pop up in places that maybe we don't even expect. Because what we see in you is not greed. It is a willingness to empty yourself on behalf of humanity, trusting that in doing so, we would be drawn to you, to hum- your humility, to your beauty, to your invitation to life as it is meant to be lived. And so we confess to you that there are things that get in the way of that. And we pray that you would deal with each of us in the way that you need to. But we pray also that we would hear in this the invitation to be rich in the things of you, to be rich in the things of God's kingdom, to be rich in love, to be rich in mercy, to be rich in seeking justice for the oppressed, to be rich in, in, in being willing to, to show grace and to extend wide the invitation to come and experience life in you. And to trust that when you do that, God, we will find that our hearts begin to beat in time with you and our minds begin to think the way that you do and we begin to see this world and the people in and around us through your eyes. And that's our hope and prayer as your church. It's in your great name that we pray these things, Lord. I pray that as we walk forth from this place, we will do so in the confidence that you make good on your promises, that if we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, you will will take care of everything else. We thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.